Independent. Expressive of a spirit of independence, self-confident, unconstrained. This is Independence Day, the show that examines the changing face of the music business and the people who are doing the changing. Independence Day brings you independent artists, producers, and music industry visionaries with in-depth interviews, live performances, and inside information, all without hype and direct from the artists who practice their craft. Tonight on Independence Day, Chris Reidenauer. Every now and again, an event happens that captures the zeitgeist of America. Charles Lindbergh's seminal 1927 crossing of the Atlantic in his rickety airplane was a major milestone in American history, and it brought the young pilot a level of fame that was theretofore unimaginable. Neil Armstrong's first steps on the moon in 1969 riveted not just a nation, but the entirety of humankind. And on July 11, 2013, the Sci-Fi Network released a made-for-TV movie called Sharknado. The plot, by all accounts utterly and intentionally absurd, was based on the occurrence of a series of disastrous tornadoes, water spouts more accurately, that sucked up untold numbers of sharks and deposited them on the streets of Los Angeles. Carnage and camp ensued. Far from the first of its kind, something about the low-budget disaster flick transfixed a goodly number of Americans, a few of whom took to Twitter about Sharknado. A buzz turned into a roar, and the movie was re-aired more than once on sci-fi, even making the jump from small screens to the big screen in 200 movie theaters in cities nationwide by last August. The inevitable sequel, Sharknado 2, the second one, followed on July 30th, 2014, and made an even bigger social media splash, with one billion impressions on Twitter, making it one of the top trending topics on social media. Musician and composer Chris Reidenauer had been scoring movies for the film studio The Asylum, who released both Sharknado and Sharknado 2 for years, turning around scores very quickly in keeping with their traditional, insanely tight production schedules. To Reidenauer, the first Sharknado was just another scoring project, and after working tirelessly for years without a break, he took his family on vacation and let someone else compose music for the film. Who could have known that the popularity of Sharknado would explode like no sci-fi movie ever had? But the Airborne Sharks are back for Sharknado 2, and so is Reidenauer, who provided the score for yet another toothy disaster that has transfixed America. Maybe it's not a man on the moon, but it is good fun. Welcome to Independence Day, Chris Reidenauer. Hey, how's it going, Joe? Good. Good morning. Good to see you. Thanks for coming into the studio. No problem. It's good to have you. And what a, what a, what a momentous week to have you come in and talk about what you do. Uh, just listen for people listening at home. Chris Reidenauer, he's a film composer. He's a musician of all stripes. But uh, most recently, you would have known him because a movie, a little movie, a, a little known movie dropped on Wednesday night called Sharknado 2, the second one, which is kind of like a cultural thing now. It was a really, really big deal. Tell me about, you know, tell me about your Wednesday. It just aired last Wednesday night. Oh, yes. A wonderfully exciting day. Very surreal. Um, kind of felt like. The whole crew were in the center of the universe for a little moment in time there. Yeah, um, got apparently it set some big Twitter rec- records, billion impressions, hundred sixty thousand tweets or something like that. Yeah, that's a lot. That's, those are big numbers. Yeah, it's big. crazy. I mean, even celebrities were tweeting tweeting about it. The creator of Game of Thrones was tweeting about it. Um, it was it was crazy. It was it was, it was a wonderful day. And um, very grateful to be a part of it. And it's funny that that's the metric by which we measure things now, mm-hmm. is how many tweets something's getting. If you would have told me 15 years ago, like, oh, I got 10 million tweets, what, what does that even mean? You know what I mean? Back in the day, now it's, uh, now it's a really big deal. That's true. It's rather ubiquitous now. Um, I think um, it's impossible for um, most young people to imagine a time where that was just didn't exist at all. It was yeah. just phone calls and newspapers and record stores yeah and radio and tv now and that all kind of thing, thing. In the past <laughs> so but you've been scoring a long time this is you know we'll talk some more about sharknado in a minute but this is by far not your first thing this has been your bread and butter for a pretty good while now right this is your professional film scorer or tv scorer yeah the studio that created um sharknado i've i'm pretty much their court composer so to speak i've been working for them since uh 2007 i believe and um i think i've done I have to look at my IMDb because I always lose track, but I think it's, I think I've done over 70 movies for them. Wow. Something like that so around the, there. So that's 70 movies in, I guess, how many years is that? About that's seven about years. Seven years. Yeah. So that's, that's pretty fast turnaround. Now, the thing is, we want to, I want to clear something up about these movies. You know, mm-hmm. primarily, you know, these are not, this is not Scorsese we're talking about <laughs> here. These are fast turnaround both in terms of the actual video production of the movie, the editing of the movie, and the mm-hmm. scoring of the movie. Like, you know, so do you know how fast they're turning around their end from the time when they, like, they, they shoot the first take to the time it's yeah, done? Yeah, I think um, usually 
it's only a couple of months, I think, from beginning to end. In the case of actually shooting the movies, I might be wrong, but I think maybe like I think Sharknado Two was shot in twelve days, something like that. Wow, that's not unusual. Most of the, most of the movies are shot in a very tight um, time frame, and uh, yeah, they do about. Uh, and when I first started working for them, it was about a movie a month. Then it went to two movies a month. And now it's coming up on two, about three sometimes movies, and it's just it's pretty pretty crazy. Now you yeah. being the main guy, I mean, is it going to get to a point where there's going to have to be other people scoring? Well, yeah, as well? I've already. Um, what happened was initially when I started doing the scores, and there was about one a month. That's that was a good amount for me to handle, and that's still pretty tight for a composer. I mean, the ideal scenario is to have about five to six weeks on a score to really. Um, give it its proper attention and to detail. Yeah. But with, with, uh, asylum, um, four weeks was the most ideal situation, but then it went to two. And then after that point, it started to get really crazy. So then at that point, I asked my friend, uh, Chris Cano is a really great composer to join me on the fun. And so we started collaborating on scores. Um, a lot of the scores like mega piranha and, um, some of the later titles we worked on together, and and then I'd still do movies by myself occasionally, but you know that there other be there be other films coming from other companies or TV shows or other projects, and then in those situations I'd bring Chris back in, and then over over the as the years progressed and the more movies came in, we tried to develop more of a teamwork philosophy to get these things done because when you're doing two or three movies a month, it's absolutely impossible for one person to do it, absolutely yeah. impossible, and still maintain the quality. Because for me, the most important thing is maintaining the quality as much as possible. And uh, so in order to do that with these super tight time frames, we had to do it more like a team. So then I brought in my friend Andrew Morgan Smith and um, Alex Artson and Eliza Swenson and, de and develop more of a teamwork mentality towards getting these movies done, which uh, was the only way to do it. Um, but that said, you know, I'm still like right now I'm starting another movie a World War II movie by uh, Joe Lawson. It's really amazing. I'm doing that one myself, kind of, kind of hitting the reset button and just kind of focusing on movie myself. The only reason I'm allowed, I'm able to do that, is because I have a little extra time. I have like three weeks, so I'm just setting aside the next three weeks to do nothing but focus on this movie. And then the one after that, Connor's doing himself. And then after that, we'll probably collaborate on another movie together. Yeah, and there's a funny little tidbit, like a detail, that like you would have been the guy to do Sharknado 1, which is kind of where this whole thing started. Well, that's what was funny about it. Funny story is that um, when the first Sharknado came along, I was, let's see, I was probably about five years in, nonstop, working every day, constantly, month after month after month, complete exhaustion. And I got to the point where I actually started to get sick from, not, not necessarily from stress, but just because I was so beaten down by the constant right. deadlines. Like I wake up dizzy, I get 104 degree temperature, and I go to the doctor and they couldn't find anything wrong with me. Eventually it was just determined that I was exhausted and I needed to take a break. So I, I, I went to the guys, I said, like, I'm going to need to take a, a couple months off. And they said, they're like, totally, don't worry about it. Take as much time as you need, come back. Yeah. So during that time, of course, the big pop culture phenomenon of all time comes in Sharknado, and I'm just like, I can't believe it. The, the, the actual two months I take off in all these years is the one movie that comes yeah. in I missed out on. So that was pretty funny. Uh, <laughs> so that was like... Yeah, it's almost like you got him to that point in terms of music, you know, with, at the cost of your health. Yeah, you know, true. And then you got him to that point, and then so, I mean, was it someone that you knew that ended up doing Sharknado? No, Shark no, I didn't, just... know, I didn't know any... I didn't know him. Um, it was a friend of the director, I think. And, uh, but yeah, I, <laughs> I was just like... This is so weird, you know, getting in the situation where you work for so many years for a company and, and miss out on it. But, you know, I was, I was, but, but that said, you know, I really did need the break and I was really super happy for the company and, and everybody was having some success with it. In the back of my mind, I thought, well, maybe I can do Sharknado 2. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. In the meantime, um, I had become good friends with the Sharknado writer, um, um, Thunder Levin, and he, uh, he and our buddies, because I scored his movie American Warships. Um, and we hit it off and we we're big film mu fans and music fans. And, and so anyway, he was writing the second Sharknado and I just said, you know, it'd be cool. I'd like to, to be involved in that one. So he passed the word along to the director and I, and I talked to the, the bosses about it and they, they gave it to me. I was really yeah. thrilled. I was like, yeah. okay, this is great. Well, it but, seems as if you kind of earned the right to kind of be part of the big zeitgeist thing. Yeah, that's going I, feel, on. I feel really good. Um, the funny thing is, is that when I finally got the movie, 
and started working on it, I, I got really, it was really intimidating. Because usually when I do a movie, it's under the radar. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> it's like it, you just do your thing and have fun. But with this one, I knew it was going to be scrutinized. Right. And everybody's going to be paying attention to it. And there's all this um, anticipation for the movie. So I spent like a few days just really stressed out. Yeah. Right. I said, man, this has got to be the greatest thing I've ever written, you know. But then after, after a while, I was like, you know, that's got to get going. So once I, once I started to dive in, get a feel for everything, then I, then I was fine. But yeah. That was fun. <laughs> yeah, well, you figure, I mean, it's, that's something I find very, very interesting about bands and musical artists who have been able to maintain, like, a high, not only their, uh, you know, fame, which is kind of a different thing, but a high, very high level of quality in their work over a period of years or even decades. Mm -hmm. And you look at someone like Paul Simon, for example. You know, he was popular in the late 60s. You know, Simon and Garfunkel arguably were one of the biggest groups in the world for a time. And then he had his success through the 70s. And then mm -hmm. in the 80s, he had Graceland and all those things. He was big yeah. again. And he kind of never went away. And his quality has been very high. You know, bands like Pink Floyd or bands like U2 mm -hmm. or bands who, you know, have a very high level of output for a very long time. Because it does change the stakes. You know, the expectations change, both it's in true. terms of financial, like the people who are your record label or the people who are working with you. Like when, when people start telling you you're great, sometimes you believe it and then... Right. Your, your quality suffers because you think you can just... Like, I think Billy Corgan, I'm going to call him to task on this. I think he started believing his own stuff, you know? And I don't think it's been as good since then, since everyone started telling him he was great. He didn't try as hard. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, like, I'm a big fan of of uh, bands like, you know, Guns N' Roses, when they start off, they're gritty and raw, and then and after they became hugely successful, it just all fell apart because yeah. they had everybody telling them how wonderful they were and money and endless amounts of resources. And, and then at that, at that point, like I, I remember a quote from Stravinsky, one of my favorite composers. He said, when I write a piece of music before I start, I, I create limitations musically that I stay within. And then w when you create limitations, then you can really free yourself uh, creatively and musically. In other words, if you have everything you could possibly want every instrument, every player, and somebody says, I want you to write a piece for like, you know, 150 musicians. Now, in the orchestra setting, that could be wonderful. And of course, I'm not seeing that's a bad thing. But at the same time, uh, it, it's having too much of a good thing sometimes is, yeah. can be a little limiting. Whereas if someone says, here's a guitar and here's three chords, write the most yeah. amazing thing you've ever done, like saying something amazing with the most simple means possible. Yeah. And that's for me as a composer and even as a songwriter I'm constantly thinking about. Say, like, how can I create the most powerful music or meaningful or beautiful music with the least amount of notes, the least amount of chords? Um, because for me, the more stuff that's going on, the less impactful it seems to be. Yeah. And so with these type of movies, it's actually nice um, to have fun with the big bombastic type music. But for me, it's also great to be able to score something more intimate um, with less instrumentation, more quiet. Yeah. Um, and then that way, when you have the big moments, they're more impactful as opposed to having lots of big moments going on constantly and you're not yeah. feeling it as much when it happens. So, <clears throat> Yeah, I kind of call that elegant simplicity. Yeah, exactly. You know, other people have used that phrase. And I think Tom Petty is a great example of that. Exactly, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it seems very simple if you listen to it on the surface. Mm -hmm. And I guess quarterly it's pretty simple. But what he's doing, or John Prine is good at that too, what's really going on there is it's simple, but it's very well crafted. Yeah, yeah. And it's like it strikes that perfect balance. So it's very accessible, yet it's quality, and yet it's also kind of simple, but not simple stupid. There's like good simple and there's simple stupid. And well, I think there's a big difference. It was funny. It reminds me of a moment in college. I was hanging out with this guy who was a stoner dude. And he was listening to Pink Floyd, and and when and there was the, one of these amazing Pink Floyd guitar solos come you know, is coming on the record, and I said to him, "It's not the notes he's playing; it's the notes he's not playing." Right. And he's like, "Whoa, man, my <laughs> mind is blown." <laughs> I bet he thought about that all yeah. week long, man. Well, I remember in conservatory, you know, I was a uh, piano performance major, and for a while I was thinking about becoming a concert pianist, and and I, I always remembered the fast crazy fast virtuoso music that everybody's blown away by is the easiest to do it's yeah. like slow it's mechanical yeah exactly but the slow piece where every note is is exposed that is what's hard yeah that's, that's the challenge to, to really create something amazing amazing performance with so few notes um that's that's where you're really tested 
Yeah, I agree. Tested. <laughs> I'm talking with film composer and scorer and musician Chris Ridenhauer. He's Los Angeles based. You've heard his uh, you've heard his work most recently in Sharknado 2, the second one, which premiered on the Sci-Fi Channel just last Wednesday, that end of July. Uh, big big deal on Twitter. Big big deal in our culture. You know, CNN was talking about this. All the major networks were talking about this, and I'm happy to see that you're a part of it, man. Let's Thanks. give a quick listen to see just a little bit about what you do. You know, in your okay. little studio up there in uh what, what is that neighborhood called over there it's not glendale eagle rock it's eagle rock is where it is this is music from chris Ridenauer. he wrote the music for shark nato 2 the second one which debuted on the sci-fi channel just last week we're going to hear a little bit of this Okay, Chris, so we're listening to what's going on here. Set the scene for us. You know, we all know what happened in Sharknado 1, which is this fairly absurd idea that sharks get sucked up by tornadoes in Los Angeles and they wreak havoc in the city of Los Angeles. So set the scene for us for the second one here. What's going on musically and thematically? Well, the film starts out with Ian Ziering's character, Finn, and Tara Reid's character, April, flying to New York City. And, uh, and they were both in the first one. They're both the main characters in the first one. And April had just written a book, How to Survive a Sharknado. So she's kind of a minor celebrity as a writer. And of course, Finn is a celebrity from saving Southern California from uh, Sharknadoes. Uh, as they're flying along, um, Kelly Osborne makes a really awesome cameo and is attending to them and wants to get an autograph from um, Tara's character. And then after a while, they have a pleasant conversation. And, and Finn, at that point, I introduced Finn's theme, which is woven throughout the whole score. Many different variations. Anyway, uh, Finn is, uh, after he talks to Terry, he looks at the window and he thinks he sees a shark. And he's not sure. He gets really worried and agitated. And this whole scene is a homage to the famous Twilight Zone episode with William right, Shatner, right. where he's looking at the window. The and they redid it later with uh, John Lithgow. So um, that, was, that was hilarious. And I totally picked up on that because I was a big fan of those shows. And um, so after a while, as, the, as uh, things progress, Finn becomes more agitated, more agitated. He's, 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 he's sure there's sharks out there, but he's not sure. And he's getting really worried. And everybody's telling him, oh, you're, you're just imagining things. Calm down, calm down. And of course, eventually a shark hits the, hits the wing of the plane and he freaks out. And he's like, oh my God, a shark. And then finally, and then the big moment happens where he says, it's happening again. And then at that point, you see the airplane with thousands of sharks rolling around it, and then at that point, it just everything goes bananas. And and then it, it, there's a wonderful cameo for fans of the movie Airplane. Robert Hayes is, yeah. makes a cameo as the uh, airplane pilot, the pilot with the, or the, the passenger with the drinking yeah, problem. It's a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful cameo. And um, and then uh, eventually, uh, Finn ends up having to take take control of the airplane we find out he's a pilot who knew right right and then he ends up uh, saving the day okay everybody safely land in new york city and that leads us to the second half of this score or the second half of this particular scene which is like the part two of it's happening again which is a little more that's uh, more yeah, that, going that's on. where the shark at that point a sh uh, the sharks start hitting the plane and hitting the um one of the sharks gets sucked into the engine okay and the engine explodes and then, and then the plane starts to uh, fall apart, and then Robert Hayes and his co-pilot get sucked out, and then there's no pilot. So at that point, um, Finn is, is trying to get to the cockpit to save everybody. And while that's happening, there's sharks getting in the plane. One of them, um, one of them kills Kelly Osborne's character, and uh, everybody's. And oh yeah, and another, and another amazing cameo, Will Wheaton. Is in uh, a passenger in space, on the plane, right? yeah, and he, and he, oh, he, yeah, he was in you know, Stand by Me and of course Star Trek: Next Generation. And I told my twelve-year-old uh, daughter he was in the movie, and she, she was, she's such a fan of eighties uh, movies, and she's like, oh, he was in Stand by Me, and I, said, I can't believe he's in the movie, and she was totally thrilled. So for me, it was great because I, I grew up in the eighties. So for my, my own daughter to to be a fan of the things I grew up with was yeah. amazing. Does Will get eaten? Uh, yeah, yes, unfortunately. Pretty much everybody yeah, except for the main he didn't make right? it. Yeah, he didn't make it. <laughs> so, okay, so now at this point, so let's listen a little, little, little bit of this score here. This is kind of when things get more intense. Here. Yeah, this just gets crazy. It gets right. crazier and crazier.
Okay, so we hear a little bit about what's going on here. We've got we've got bedlam essentially. We've got flying sharks, sort of. Uh, we've got tornadoes. We've got crashing airplanes. <laughs> we've got celebrity cameos. People being eaten. Uh, now, right away, I want to jump in and say this this type of movie requires. Not, I think it's beyond suspension of disbelief. It's not just suspension. <laughs> I think it's something called destruction of disbelief. Would, would you agree? I look at it as a wonderfully charming concept. This the idea of sharks and tornadoes is just makes me very happy. And, and the thing is great about that concept. You can throw anything in there. You can throw cows. You can throw yeah. zebras, giraffes. It works no matter what you do. So it's a win-win scenario for everybody. Yeah. I'm talking with Chris Reidenauer. He's a film scorer. He's Los Angeles-based. We're talking about him making the music for Sharknado 2, debuted on the Sci-Fi Channel just last week. Uh, a lot of Twitter hits. And then you got to you got a crazy week all the way around because when it debuted on Wednesday night, you weren't just sitting home in your underwear watching this movie, eating Cheetos. Like, you went to a premiere where there were some folks there. Tell us yeah, about that. Yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty fun. Um, the asylum across the street from the studio, there's a comedy club called Flappers, or occasionally they do little premieres and parties there. And so uh, I went down there with uh, Chris Conn and Eliza Swinson, who worked with worked with me on the score, and my daughter Catherine. And we went down there. It was so much fun. I mean, uh, Tara Reid was there, and, all, and the whole crew, the asylum crew, the director, um, and we just had a blast because we got to watch it on live TV and and. Uh, and laugh and kind of pretend like yeah. pretend like we had not already seen it a thousand times yeah. and then get to laugh with everybody who hadn't seen it you know those big moments and, it, and yeah. I had a time in my life it was so much fun I mean it, it was a great night it was a magical magical night I'll never forget it and then you had you know bu see that's the thing like in my circle of friends that's Bunny Lebowski you know what I didn't I, for I totally forgot that was her in the movie yeah because I, I, I didn't because I actually remember seeing it on cable like six months ago and I, I didn't realize that was that was Tara Reid yeah. I mean, you know, she's been in a bunch of kind of random movies over the years, but like in my in my circle of friends, I mean, other than like the Sharknado stuff that she's done more recently, you know, it's it's she's bunny. She will right, she is right, and will right, always right. be bunny Lebowski. <laughs> the the you know, the the cause of all the trials and tribulations of both both Jeffrey Lebowski right, in that right, movie, right, one of my right. favorite movies. Um, all right, I'm talking with Chris Ridenauer, film score. We've been listening to music from Sharknado too. But uh, so tell me, let's back up a little bit. Like, talk to let's talk about your process. Like, because you're a guy like most musicians, as I understand it, you kind of grew up at just wanting to be in bands and write music and play music. Like, you know, kind of describe yourself in high school, you know, when you were learning music and learning instruments. Like, what was your life like then? Well, uh, initially, I was in the, I was in the movie scores, uh, like John Williams, Jerry Goldsmith. And then from that, I got into, um, strangely enough, I got into guitar, and then a friend of mine turned me on to uh, this guy, Ingve Momstein, who's a right. guitarist, metal guitarist, but he's extremely classical influenced. And uh, it also, that around that time, I was um, actually, this is a little before I was into the movie Amadeus, you know, about Mozart, because that was so cool, because you get to see these. It wasn't just some guy with a, with a powdered wig and an old painting, it was like a real living, breathing guy yeah. who was living this crazy life like a rock star, but writing this amazing music so that put a made it human for me and then at that point i started getting the classical i thought i think that was yeah that was how it went i got into that first i was in the classical then i got into ingve who was a classical guitarist and then from him i got into metal and then i, then I for a couple of years i was in metal bands and what again, were you playing were you playing guitar i was playing guitar yeah i was into the whole thing i'd even inhale and all that but where I grew up in Roanoke, Virginia, which is a great place to grow up, but unfortunately it was a little behind the times. Like, I didn't have any friends who were into really cool stuff like, you know, Joy Division or, or the post-punk stuff. It was always like Bon Jovi or something. So yeah. it's like, or you know, so I was kind of yeah. It was the music of the time. It was the music like, of the was... time. I was into it, but I it just I couldn't find anybody like myself who really wanted to do something cool. You know, like like um, take it seriously, take a band seriously, and and. Even when I went to college, I met some great friends, but no one wanted to do anything. Like I said, well, let's do this. You know, I don't want to just get a degree in music and then, you know, and then just working with you know, sweeping floors somewhere. Right. I want to actually do something with a career in music. And right around that time, I went to see uh, a movie called Beetlejuice, and I thought, man, this music is great. And uh, he's this Danny Elfman guy, and then, and then he did Batman. I thought, oh, this is amazing. And I said, wait a second, this is the accumulation of everything that I love. It, it's it's film music and there's and there's elements of because you know Danny Elfman was in a band so I said like, well here's a guy who was in a band and he went on to do 
uh, film music, so it wasn't like you're limited to one or the other. You can just do whatever you want. You can yeah. be in a band and you can do uh, film music and not be limited to one genre. Um, so that was super inspiring to me. And then, and then the the biggest thing that happened to me uh, right around that time in college is we had a master class by a composer named Todd Hayen. He was a former um, student of the school I went to at Shenandoah University. And he was amazing, and the master class was wonderful, and, and he came to a, um, a, sh- um, a concert where I had some of my pieces performed, and he had some nice things to say. And, and I thought, well, do you, has anybody who's graduated from this school, you know, and this has been like probably almost 20 years since he had graduated, and he's, he was well-established in Hollywood. I was like, has anybody who's graduated go, gone to work for you as an assistant or anything? And he's like, no. And I was like, I couldn't believe it. All these years not one person. I thought, well, I'm going to do that. So as soon as I got out of school, I, I just got a truck, packed all my stuff up, moved out to LA. And, and, and then I'm, after a little bit of a transition period, I ended up working for him. Okay. And, uh, and that was kind of my, my, my break, my big break, so to speak, into getting into film music. Cause within like a couple of weeks, I was on sound stages at Paramount. I was working on Blade, Rush, Rush Hour, October Sky, Men of Honor, all these big giant movies. So, what? Tell me, what does an entry level thing like that look like? Like, what? What were you doing in terms of music? Were you, you know, they, those are big movies. I mean, the scores are yes done at that well, point at or first, not done at that point. Like, what are you doing? Well, there's a couple. The longer version of the story was when I first arrived out here. Um, there was a breaking in period because he he was giving me the opportunity, but he wasn't going to just throw me into this whole thing without having some baby steps to get there. So the first thing he said was pretty funny. He's like, get a job, which I thought was funny. He's like, just get a job. I was like, okay. Yeah. So he said, I was like, all right. So I got a job at Virgin Records back when they had record stores, which changed my life because at that at, at that store, I met all my good friends, Julie. I met Chris Cano, who I still work with to this day. I met my friends, Eris, and my wife, when she moved out here, she got a job there. So that that place changed my life. Everybody that I'm friends with to this day is because of that one job. Anyway, so getting back to Todd, um, after basically at first he, he he allowed me to sit in on the sessions, kind of observe, watch, and then after a while his wife Janice Hand had a uh, she, she had a uh, music copying service. Basically, what they do is they get the scores from the composers, and then they prepare all the parts for the players, which is a very intense process because you get a score with you know, a full orchestra and you got to prepare right. parts for every single player. Which is very, very specific. People don't really realize. I mean, when you do that kind of thing, mm. you have to have knowledge of the range of each instrument, how each instrument is played mechanically. Like, is it even possible to Absolutely. do that kind of thing? You know, how, how you have to apply that instrument to that score and vice versa. Exactly. And, and Janice was um, kind enough to bring me on board with the music copying department. And then, and then I was helping prepare the, the uh, score, the um, parts for the players, and that was very grueling, intense, hard, hard work. I mean, we'd be up two days straight, just cranking out part after part after part. It was really, really intense. But it was that was kind of like the grunt work stuff. And and then after doing that for a while, I kind of proved my worth, I guess. And then he was like, "Well, let's let's do some stuff in the studio." So at that point, he had me do mock-ups, and basically he would um, compose everything on paper, staff paper. Uh, fully orchestrated, and then I'd have, and at that point, compared to today's standards, the 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 um, computer's sample situation was a little more primitive, but still effective. And I would basically mock up his his orchestrations with MIDI, you know, and right. uh, MIDI instruments. And MIDI, just to take a quick step back, like for people who aren't musicians, MIDI is essentially that was the first standardized computer music. Uh, like like protocol, exactly. sort of. It allowed devices to talk to one another. Yeah, it's amusing that term kind of exactly. loosely. Like you could you could have a little box that just had sounds in it and attach it with a MIDI cable. And if you had all your settings correct, you could play a keyboard. And then by changing the sounds, you could make it sound like a synthesizer or exactly. a piano or a drum set or yeah. a bass or a horn or whatever you wanted to do. And it was much more complicated than that. But some mm-hmm. people just don't even know what MIDI even is. Sure, sure. That's exactly it. And uh, so I would um, mock up his uh, pieces for these directors and they come and hear them. And sometimes the mock-ups would end up in the score as the final version, just with a lot of tweaks or added instrumentation. Sometimes you'd have a string quartet come in to play layers over it um, in any number of different combinations. And we did that for for a while and worked on a lot of really cool shows. And and um, it was a really, really great experience. So that's kind of how I got my foot in the door. 
Um, and then after a couple of years of that, uh, my friend Chris Kana, who worked at Virgin Records, he was starting a band. And then I was always wanting to do a band anyway out here. And he was a guy like me who was really serious, who was really wanted to do something uh, great and, and, and with a lot of commitment. And so I was like, okay, that's totally what I want to do. So then at that point, I started to veer more into the rock world. And then eventually... I segued out of the composing world and for a number of years was totally doing the band thing in LA, playing all the big clubs, Whiskey, Roxy, Troubadour, yeah. blah, 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 doing tours and everything. And then eventually after a few years of that, um, it, it didn't, it's a long, long story. I, there's thousands and thousands of bands that have been to this scenario of trying to make it and then not have it work out for whatever number of reasons. But long story short, it didn't work out. And then at that point, um, the circumstances arose again where I could get back into film music again. That's where I hooked up with the asylum. Okay. And then at that point, and that was around 2007, um, I pretty much was focusing myself back on a film music career. Okay. But now, like now it's both again. Now the, one of the bands I was informally re reunited and uh, now we're working on a new album and I'm doing the films, the film scores. So now I'm best of both worlds yeah. doing it both again. Yeah, you're kind of having your cake and eating it too. In I'm terms all about of that. the cake and eat it too. Yeah, I appreciate that. I have to have things. the cake. <laughs> you know, we, uh, everyone loves cake. Talking to Chris Reidenauer. He is a musician, film score. He did the music for Sharknado 2. The second one just debuted last week. Let's listen to a little bit more of Sharknado music when we come back. I want to talk a little bit about your specific process, like how you, you, know, you get a movie and then where you go from there. Because just for people sure. who don't have any idea how this kind of thing works, because people see it on the TV as the finished product. They don't really know what goes into this kind of thing. So uh, this is the cue. Uh, would you call it a cue? What, what do you call these things? Oh, they're, yeah, they're cues. Cues. Okay, call it a cue. This is a cue slash piece of music called It's Raining Sharks. This is the composer of that piece, Chris Reidenauer, here on Independence Day. <laughs> Let's jump in and talk about this cue just a little bit. It's raining sharks. I mean, I think the title is fairly self-explanatory. So now we're in New York and there are sharks coming out of the sky. So your assignment, Chris, is to make that, what kind of music would that be? And this is it. This is what you came up with. Like, how did you, why this specific well, idea? Well, in this cue, uh, Finn and Sky are racing to the rooftops to um, get their homemade bombs, uh, to throw them in the, the attempt to throw them in the tornadoes to stop the shark, well, I should say the sharknadoes. And uh, so the music is very propulsive, heavy. It's like, you know, end of the world, we gotta do this or we're all gonna die kind of music. So it's very, very intense. And then while that's happening, people are getting killed by sharks that are falling on the streets and uh -huh. smashed. And, and um, the second part of the cue is what I call a uh, bad weather impending doom kind of cue where okay. the app, it's more of an atmospheric something bad's gonna happen type music where the, where the I just kind of was thinking of air um, when I wrote it so the strings are like air that is floating yeah. and but very ominously I love the words that composers use to describe these kinds of things in film scoring. They use kind of these nebulous terms to describe. Yeah, everything's always visual. Yeah, but it's with colors or visuals. It has yeah. to be that way for me. I, I can't think of it any other way. Yeah, and it, because it's, it's, yeah, it's like painting. You're painting with music based on what's, you know, because you've been given an assignment. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, you are scoring to support a piece of visual work that's happening. And there's action on the screen and there's dialogue on the screen. Um, so, you know, you are, you must, have, you must have a very, very large musical vocabulary in terms of what you're doing. Because, you know, to boil it down to its simplest terms, up-tempo happy stuff, you know, mm -hmm. up-tempo major key stuff equals happy. Right, right. You know, low brooding uh, minor key stuff is ominous. And there's know? also, yeah, there's, there's polytonal and atonal right. cues. Um, so it's a lot of fun to go back and forth between those two, or depending on what's happening on the screen and give it the variety that it needs to keep everything moving forward. Okay, so walk me through, let's take a step back. Like, like this could be Sharknado, this could be any movie. Sharknado mm -hmm. 2 could be any movie you work on or anything. Um, you get a piece of film from the director, from the studio. How mm -hmm. complete is it? Like, is it something that's pretty much edited to fit? Is it scene by scene? Like, what does it look like when you get, you know, something to start writing music well, for a it's, movie? Well, um, it comes in one of two ways. Either it's locked or it's, it's rough cut. And ideally, I would like to have it locked, meaning that the edit is done. Right. And they're not making any changes. But if there's a quick deadline and I want to get started, sometimes I'll ask for the rough cut so I can just get going. 
And then when I get the locked cut, I can edit what I did to fit the locked cut just to save time because right. I don't want to get a locked cut and have four days to score a movie. You know, right, right, right. Ready. So, but yeah, usually I get it in a locked cut. And then uh, I usually have a spotting session with the director. We'll sit down and watch the movie and he'll, he'll uh, talk to me about some ideas he has for creative direction. I'll give him some ideas what I think we could do, like what certain spots to accent. Uh, musically, where to where to not have music? Um, yeah, because at that point you need to know to be out of the way. Like if a big cue is going to happen, it's a big sound effect. Exactly. Because an explosion can be rendered in an explosion, like the sound of an explosion, or it can be rendered in a musical cue that you're doing. Yeah, sometimes you have to write around what the effects are in anticipation of what you know is going to be there if you're not actually hearing it. Like if you see an explosion on screen but you're not hearing it then you can think, well, I'll have the music cut out momentarily or use the John Williams trick of having a lot of high instruments going on. For instance, when the famous scene of Raiders of Lost Ark where um, Indiana Jones is running away from the giant boulder, I was watching an interview with John Williams and he said, yeah, when I saw that, I knew it was just going to be this boulder sound, so I just had a lot of high trumpets and flutes going yeah, on. stay out of the so way of the low rumbling. So it still, still created the atmosphere of intensity and excitement, but but not get in the way of what you know the effect's going to be. So so in a sense, you have to write around. And also writing around dialogue. When people are talking, you don't want to have a lot of brass fanfares going on. You know, or something. <laughs> you want to keep yeah. the music. Usually in situations like that, I try to do like a undercurrent of low percussion. If something needs to, something needs to be there, it's usually something that stays out of the way of the dialogue. So basically, you're, when you're composing, you're sculpting the score around dialogue, effects, and then... There are certain things where music's going to stand out, like transitions, or there are certain big moments where music's going to take the forefront. And then at that point, you give it over to the mixer, who's in charge of balancing all these issues. You know, uh, it's, it's the mixer's job to make everything work. Um, and then at that point, there's a little go, there's, there's a go back and forth period of of, of um, reviewing the mix with the director and the producers and 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 then we talk about this needs to be louder this needs to be lower and the process continues all the way up to the last second before the movie's out the door and there's and even then there's always with every movie there's always things that you wish could be better or i think that could be said for absolutely anything chris from any painting to a sandwich man i wish i would have put more yeah i don't think there's any composer that, that 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 has ever worked on a movie that was 100 percent happy yeah maybe there are i don't know but in my experience especially with things as rushed as they are, I, there's always something that I wish yeah. was... And it, for me, it's not about my music has to be huge or, or anything at all. I'm, I'm, I, to be honest with you, I don't really have an ego about this kind of stuff. I just want what's best for the movie. What, yeah. to, to what I call it is a movie magic moment where you're watching something and you feel that magical feeling yeah. of just of that you're in it. You're in the movie and everything is just right to where the suspension of disbelief's kicked in and you're just having fun or whatever it is the, the motion that's intended for the scene. And um, so for me, it's all about serving the movie, whatever whatever's needed, required, that um, I bring to the table what the movie needs to be successful. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about, like, because we've talked about kind of the mechanics of how this works out, but let's talk about something that I think Jack Black calls Inspirado in the, uh, the Tenacious D world. I love which Tenacious is, D. Yeah, who doesn't? <laughs> Funny stuff. But... Uh, so you, know, you get your either your locked cut or your rough cut or whatever you get, right? So you're sitting there and you kind of know, okay, so this is an action scene, maybe it's up tempo. But you're cranking out so much music, you know, and this music is a living, breathing, artistic thing. You know, you must, is it, do you, do you have a wellspring of ideas? Like obviously things make, like make sense. If it's up tempo, you want percussion and you mm-hmm. want movement in the mm-hmm. music. But I mean, tell me where you find those kernels of inspiration. Having to crank out so many motifs and so many ideas mm-hmm. and so many themes and so many things. And you said you already, you know, before said that you have a commitment to making it as quality, high quality as you can. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where do you find that inspiration? Well, it's, it's um, a couple things. One is artistic and one is practical. The artistic one is if I'm working on a movie that, that I'm really, I really enjoy an element of, whether it's an actor's performance or it's a story, or there's something I can really sink my teeth into that's very enjoyable, then that immediately inspires music. The second practical one is the deadline. For instance, if someone says, I need you to write a five-minute cue that's going to air on national TV for two million people, and I need it in four hours, you don't have time to think. You just go. And, yeah. then, and then through the process of the immediacy of it, you you know, knock on wood, you, hopefully you'll come up with something pretty cool. And I've been lucky enough that 
you know, for the most part that's happened. Um, so it's kind of a, and sometimes it works hand in hand. If I'm working on a movie that I, I love, but also have no time, then it, like I was working on a movie called Abraham Lincoln versus zombies, which is hilarious. It was, it was probably one of the coolest movies they've done. And the main reason is because the, the guy who played Lincoln was so believable as Lincoln. I mean, he, he beats, as far as I'm concerned, he beats Daniel Day-Lewis. I mean, he's so believable as Lincoln that when he starts kicking, when he starts like kicking zombies butts with the, with the sickle, I mean, it's hilarious. I mean, this is just the most hilarious thing I've ever seen because I bought into the character so much. So because I, because the characters, because the actor, his performance was so convincing, the music was just pouring out of me. I mean, it was so inspiring and, and it was wonderful. And I've had that happen many times where I was working on a movie with a character that, that inspired me. And with Sharknado, I had a similar experience because the, the the whole movie was just so much fun, and that's the word I want to emphasize is fun. Because you know, occasionally I run into these you know these snobs here and there, or friends that'll you know they're like, well, it's not you know like Filet Mignon or The Godfather, or you know they're yeah it, it, with their croissants and crystal. I mean, give me a break. It's man. not it's high like, art. Yeah, it's... don't you want to have fun sometimes too? That's what my, my, my mentor Todd Hand said once. He's like, yeah, I like filet mignon, but I also like to have a lollipop too every now and then. You know, it's like, why can't we just have fun? And that's the thing about Chardonnay that was that's so, so amazing is it's just constant fun. And, uh, and so for me, that was the best part of working on the movie and, and watching it, even with people that we were, you know, we worked on it together and with the director and, 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 the, and a lot of the crew and we got to watch it the other night and just enjoy it yeah. and not have to be stressed out by every single detail or shot and just enjoy it like everybody else was. And it had time in my life. And for me, that was great to be a part of. It's a funny thing about the entertainment business because, you know, here in Los Angeles, everybody's in, in it up to their eyeballs. Yeah. or sometimes deeper, or they're drowning in it. It's true. You know, and they do lose sight of the fact that what we're doing is entertainment for people. Exactly. You know, whether it makes you happy or sad or angry <laughs> right, right. Or, or whatever it is. Like, we got into this because we love it. Totally. You know, there's a lot of love with a capital L well, being thrown also, around. I also like being, also, I've always loved the underdog. I've always loved being a rebel, a pirate, you know, someone who's, you know, kind of looked down on a little bit. I've always reveled in that kind of vibe. So for me, working on movies that are kind of like, you know, off the beaten path, you know, yeah. and for me, I think it's great. And I've always loved, I love things that are surreal or over the top or crazy yeah. or nuts. And for me, that's, I mean, life, if you think about life is you were just in the course of your day to think, man, life is, this is crazy. What am I doing yeah. here? Where are these crazy things going on in the world? Why are we here? And I buy more into that concept than yeah. the, everything is perfect and safe and structured. You know, yeah. for me, that's scary. Yeah. Yeah, well, there's beauty in the chaos. You know, nature is entropy. Nature. That's why the character in the the Joker in the Dark Knight is such a great character. Because yeah. it's just you know, there's even though he's terrifying as a monster, there's something there's a lot of truth to what he's saying. Yeah, yeah well, everybody everybody has that part of them that wants their unchecked id. They want to be able to run rampant and just do what they want to do. You know, or like we were saying earlier, the cake and eat it too. And that's what's yeah. fun about doing these movies is that I can be the Joker. Yeah. I can be the crazy character. You know, and I can have this crazy wild side of me that expresses myself with these you know, over the top movies and insane situations. But then, you know, I go home and I have my family life and normal life. So it's yeah. like kind of living a double life in a way. <laughs> yeah. And that's the funny thing about Los Angeles in general. And there's so many people here who come to a place like Los Angeles or New York to a certain extent as well, where it's like the person who was the outsider in every town in the, you know, from here to the other coast of America and sometimes far beyond. It's like they're drawn somewhere where they're able to do, to be themselves. For sure. Drawn to be somewhere where they're able to work in the arts mm -hmm. or to like live out their crazy ideas. You know, and I'm not talking about eating people or anything like that. I'm talking about artistic goals. Um, and I think that's why, you know, in some funny way, that's why, you know, Los Angeles is the way it is because everybody took that chance yeah. and left their hometown and came to a place like that where their dreams could come true. You know, that's kind of like the big, sure. the big Disney thing, right? They go to New York for the same reason. And some people go to Nashville and some people go to Chicago or whatever, wherever they go. Um, and I always find it fascinating, you know, because in some ways, you know, that kind of it's like we're it's like we're we're taking the talent of everywhere mm -hmm. and putting it in Los Angeles, putting it in New York, putting yeah. it in places like that. So I don't know. It's, this is a crazy place, man. It's exciting. I love it. I mean, it's like when I came out here immediately, I find people like myself yeah, with the same kind of mentality and, and it's, ref it was really refreshing 
and I love it, and I'm, I feel very, very blessed. Yeah, I'm talking with Chris Reidenauer. He's a film scorer, composer, musician. You can learn about everything you need to know about him in terms of his music, facebook.com slash Chris Reidenauer Music. And his last name, just so you know, R-I-D-E-N-H-O-U-R. <laughs> so Chris Reidenauer Music, uh, twitter.com Chris Reidenauer, or simply at Chris Reidenauer, and soundcloud.com slash Chris Reidenauer. He's done the music for a bunch of movies how many did you say you total all now i have to check my imdb but it's in the 80s something 80s right now. yeah and that's only in like 10 or so years right they yeah, it's crazy years. i mean it's it's so funny because i've done so many movies sometimes i found that i'm doing a movie because it, it shows up my imdb i'm like oh i'm doing that oh okay most oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, people they get a call or yeah. at first it was a call and then it was like uh the, the the movie's waiting for you and then now it's just like it just shows up my MDB. Like, yeah. Oh, I guess I'm doing that movie. Yeah. <laughs> I want to imagine it's like that for a lot of people in this business. So let's hear let's hear one more cue from Sharknado two, the sci fi movie that was the big, big Twitter moment just this last week. So here it is. Sharknado two music Chris Reidenauer. Okay, Chris. So now we're how far into the movie now, and what's going on here? This is towards the end of the movie where uh, Finn is in the air with his chainsaw, and he sees the, the biggest great white truck he's ever seen flying right towards him. So he gets his chainsaw out, and he plows right through it, and goes in his mouth and comes out the other end, cuts the shark in half. And he's like a superhero at this point. He's, he's super yeah. Finn. And he... <laughs> And then, at the, uh, and then he finally finds another, and he finds another great white shark, and he jumps on top, and then the, the shark falls down, and then gets impaled at the top of the Empire State Building, and that's his big victorious moment. And at the same time, this is happening. Um, the citizens in New York are fighting back against the sharks, and they're getting at any weapon they can, you know, and, and stabbing them, and. and uh, yeah, and there's, uh, the day. <laughs> there's a lot of cameos here, if I if I remember this right. Judd Hirsch yes. plays a taxi driver, he which is, is an yes. homage to his own, you know, and, and being in taxi. Was he ever even seen in a taxi in the show? I don't Well, they never really left that room. Yeah, That's so I guess that was the first time you show. actually saw him in a taxi. Christopher maybe, Lloyd was on the show, yeah, exactly. Judd Hirsch was on the show, and Danny DeVito was on that show. <laughs> That's right. That's and right. then also, there were some other like famous news personalities who were kind of fighting yeah, the back Today against show, the show. Yeah, the Today Show, Al Roker, and yeah, yeah, wonderful cameos. Uh, from a lot of the talk shows and um, Weather Channel, I think, is uh -huh. in there. And uh, yeah, it's it was fantastic. It was the cameos are awesome, and um, the whole movie is just delightful. I had a really fantastic time. It seems on. like to me like this movie is a high water mark in not taking things seriously. Is kind of the whole point, right? Exactly. I mean, it, I mean, think about it. The, at the end of the movie, where Finn pulls out. Uh, you know, it pulls out the Tara's arm and then it throws the arm away and gives her the ring. I mean, come on. It's like, it's, it's, it's awesome. It's hilarious. You know I mean? And I just think the whole thing is delightful and, um, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. I really enjoyed that scene. <laughs> so let's switch gears just a little bit here. You know, we've talked a lot about Sharknado. We've talked a lot about your film scoring work. But you mentioned this before. Like, you know, you know one of your original goals was being involved in, you know, popular music sure. or, you know, rock bands, whatever kind of thing. So tell me a little bit about what you've got going on. Like you said before, you've had got two situations going on now. You've got your film scoring thing, which is kind of your bread and butter. Mm -hmm. But you're kind of veering back into doing performance and recording of that kind of thing like, well, tell me a little bit about that yeah things kind of what's the name of the band it's called the divine madness and um things kind of came full circle and 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 i'll tell you how uh back in 2007 um my friend chris connor and i met this uh singer uh, liza swinson she was also an actress and uh we had we she had an amazing voice and was an amazing amazing writer and so we started this band, and uh, it turned out that her um, she had a connection to Asylum as an actress, and that's how I got introduced to Asylum was through her. And then she was also she's also a film composer, so she was working on some film scores, and then, and it was like, well, let's work on one together. So we worked on a film score together, and that's how I got hooked up with these guys was through was through her. Unfortunately, the band broke up shortly after that point, and then I lost contact with her for many years. Um, during that time, I. Um, pretty much just continued with the asylum for a few months. I wasn't sure what was going to happen was going on, but then a friend of mine, Davy Jones asked me to score a movie for them 
called Journey to the Center of the Earth. And at that point, everything picked up and it got crazy. And the next thing you know, I'm doing it full time. So fast forward to last year, uh, Liza and I, we reconnected and thought it'd be fun to start the band again. And immediately it was just like an explosion of songs. We were like, we, within a couple of months, we'd written 40 songs together. And we we're thinking about getting the whole band back together with Chris and, and the whole gang. And then we're like, well, maybe we'll just, for now, we'll just keep it between the two of us. Like, kind of like the Arrhythmics, you know, just yeah, a duo, Dave Stewart a duo kind of band, you know. So that was kind of our model, was the, the Arrhythmics. So at the moment, we're a duo. And you know, what's really funny is that back in 2007, when we were initially doing the band, our idea for the band was um, uh, very theatrical, and over the top, and it was kind of like Lady Gaga before Lady Gaga was around, and before, and like Lana Del Rey before she was around. So we kind of combined what, what you would know of them today. We were already doing that before, but unfortunately, we broke up, and then they came into the scene. I was right. like, oh my god, we were doing that. I was like, we were, we were, we were totally doing that before they came out. And when Lana Del Rey came out, I was like, oh man, we were doing that. We were doing that same thing, and she beat us to it. And then that's when I was inspired to give her, you know, contact her and. And we start, we hooked up again. And, but now our style is much different. Now our style is more, we really wanted to do something a lot more, um, less kind of fantasy based, but more just real. Like we're getting into like, you know, Johnny Cash and just, you know, guitar based songs where the vocals, you know, prominent. And, uh, and for me, it's been really refreshing just getting back to basics with, with songwriting. But at the same time, we're, evolving trying to evolve a style that's unique to ourselves and experimenting and we're really getting to production a lot because when we started working together we we're thinking we should maybe work with a producer and i'm thinking why should we do that we're film composers we have yeah. all every gear you could possibly imagine we have all these scoring chops why don't we just use our knowledge to develop a cool style together and we've been working intensely over the last few months to do that and and i think we're breaking some new ground and, and we're having a great time is it hard to switch gears it's a good question. Um, it is hard to switch gears. I mean, I mean, from composing like yes, film scores to composing is. popular music. I mean, it is uh, the only the best scenario is if I can work on one or the other a day. But I can't. It's hard to go back and forth on the same day. Like if I was doing a song in the beginning of the day and the score at the end, it's harder for me than if I was just doing one song one day and the score the next day. But because of the situation where there's deadlines and then we're trying to get the band off the ground at the same time, there's no other choice but to do it that way. Because Eliza, she's also an amazing film composer, and she's worked with me on a bunch of film scores as well. So sometimes we'll just take a week to just do a score together, and then we'll take another week if we have it off to work on songs. So we're constantly going back and forth. So it's definitely a challenge. Yeah. To, yeah, mentally. Well, let's hear what this sounds like. This is the band The Divine Madness, one half of which is sitting with me right now. That's Chris Reidenhauer, film composer, and also a regular, I say regular musician. What does that even mean? You're an all-around musician, man. <laughs> uh, this is the track God's Arms. Chris Reidenhauer. Um, let me do that again. All right, so this is The Divine Madness, one half of which is sitting in front of me right now. Chris Reidenhauer, film composer, did Sharknado 2 music along with about 80 other scores or so, give or take. This is the track Shot Me Dead on Independence Day. You shot me dead like a dog on the highway The one I love Shot me straight through the heart As I bleed out I cry to you on the highway Revolver snapped and clicked back all my love If love is blind was gunning for me Cause I could tell That your heart was always true And those sweet lips Crack and parted From the sun sweat They spoke my name And they whispered Oh my love Oh, 
unreleased music from Chris Reidenauer and his band, The Divine Madness. When will this be released as an album? Has this got a date? Are you guys have a deadline? Are you working towards something solid in that regard? At the moment, we don't have a release date. We're going to take a um, five-song EP and shop it around to some different labels to see if anybody wants to get in on this before we do okay. it, before we get it out there. Yeah, get someone else to pay for it. <laughs> right, right. That's the big and deal. And if not, then we'll just release it independently. And the cool thing is, is because we, we're film composers, we can put our songs in movies and have a distribution outlet and yeah. millions of people are going to hear our songs yeah. through just getting them on TV shows and movies. So. Yeah, it's a very, very different thing. So many people got into film scoring. Like, you know, I, you know, I've done a little bit of it myself and I enjoy it. It's a very, very different challenge than just kind of just writing songs. I see yeah. that's hard enough as it is. For sure. It's a very different beast. But, you know, a lot of artists that I respect a lot, Mark Knopfler has done a lot of film scoring over the years, did The Princess Bride, Local Hero, did uh, Wag the Dog. Mark Mothersborough, too, from Mike Devo. Mothersborough from Devo has done it. Uh, you know, a lot of people. And then there's, then there's Nick like... Nick Cave. Nick Cave. Then there's the kind of the other style, which is like the Neil Young style, who did Dead Man, the Jim yeah. Jarmusch film, where, yeah. I mean, it is scoring, but it's less a function of like writing out oboe parts or using MIDI instrumentation to kind of create a symphonic thing. It's just he kind of does what he does, and everyone knows yeah, it's Yeah, the really idea young. of traditional scoring, and unless you're doing it, the John Williams-type situation is kind of... I mean, anything goes. It's just whatever's yeah. best for the film. So, Chris, we've been talking about the mechanics of scoring, and we've been talking about MIDI instrumentation because so much of what you do is like virtual instruments. They're instruments that have been sampled or mm -hmm. synthesized because that puts, an that puts the entire musical palette at your fingertips. For sure. And that means buying what they call sound libraries, mm -hmm. which are, so how much do you think you've got invested in like, in some, just specifically sound libraries in terms of mus musical instruments? The, the instrument, oh, could be $40,000. Yeah. I mean, I, if everything, something new comes out, I get it. And it, they're wonderful tools, but at the end of the day, nothing beats a live player. Yeah. Nothing beats it. I mean, it, it's more of a means to an end. If the budgets usually are, are lower, um, either I, but oh, you know, I always try to add live instruments myself because right. I play them, or I'll bring in a friend to play something. The ideal scenario would be to have uh, all live players, or, or right. at least half. John Williams gets to have all live players. But as far as I know, almost nobody <laughs> that I know nowadays gets to have all live well, players. Well, the uh, you know the big movie guys do. I mean, any anything with a budget over a hundred thousand dollars, you can get a decent size orchestra. Yeah. Usually these days they do what's like like the Hans Zimmer. Approach is more like a hybrid approach. Hybrid meaning they combine the samples and synths with live players. Right. Like Trevor Rabin, I know, does yeah, that too. Yeah, they do a lot. That's, old guitar player that's from kind yes. of what's big now. Um, I think that's great. I mean, I'm more into, you know, I'm more of a traditional old school orchestral guy, John Williams, Jerry Goldsmith. That's just more my thing personally. I, I enjoy the hybrid stuff. I enjoy experimenting with it, but... For me, having a live player play a melodic line is much more satisfying than yeah than spending hours figuring out a sequence on a keyboard, which is great too. But yeah. just for me personally, I'd rather have a live player. Unfortunately, I haven't had. I usually don't have big enough budget to get a lot of live players in, but I do the best I can. Yeah, and that's just the thing. Like you, you kind of touched on this a second ago, which is that that's one way to kind of humanize something that is For very sure. virtual. Like you can take, create a string pad, which is, as much as you would like that to be played by three players from the Philharmonic or whatever, you can kind of fake that on a, on a keyboard or with a sample. You know, you, you know, there's some tricks you can do to make it sound more human, right? Mm -hmm. That technology has advanced quite a bit. But then a way to make that more human is to take a real player and either blend it in with that mm -hmm. So there exactly. are real players mixed with virtual players and then have like a really key important line, like a cue, uh, 
you know, played over the top of that. That's a real instrument. Cause then people like your ear won't be drawn to the fakeness of the fake stuff. Yes. It'll be drawn to the realness of the real that's stuff. That's what I did with a movie I scored recently called persecuted. I had, um, my fa- my friend Tina Guo, she's probably the, the best cellist in the world. And, uh, she works with Hans Zimmer and all those big composers, but I've known her for many years and she just completely n- nailed it. I mean, she, her playing was so beautiful on, on these cues that it just, it just made the, the whole difference. I mean, in the world, I mean, it yeah. went from sounding like this could be a cool cue and then she played on it. Then all of a sudden it's like this music revelation. Yeah. You know? So I can't say good enough things about Tina. And, uh, but any, any live, anytime you have a great player on a cue, even if it's just one player, it's a vocalist, guitar, anything, just one thing that's human. Yeah. That, that's why I love songs so much and getting back to the band, the band thing, because just having a, a singer, a voice on a song, the immediacy of it. I know it sounds so so simple because we take it for granted every day, but it's something that just connects with your heart instantly. Yeah. So for me, that and keeping things more simple, more streamlined, getting to the motion of what you're trying to convey, to me, that's what I'm focusing my mind more and more towards. Right. Whereas 10 years ago, it was more towards the bombastic, huge orchestral, let's see how much stuff I can do and yeah. over the top emotions and craziness. And now I'm trying to get back to... To something more real, yeah. at least for me, where I am now. Maybe in 10 years, I'll go back to where I was. I don't know. Yeah, well, we're all artists. We're all doing, you know, we're kind of following our muse wherever it takes us. If we're, you know, as artists, you know, that takes us all different kinds of places. For sure. And that's what's really neat about music. Like, for instance, uh, I'm, I don't know how to play the cello very well, but I'll spend, you know, a good amount of time trying to get one note in tune. That's a note that I would take for granted hitting it on the piano. Yeah. But when you do it with an instrument you don't know and you're able to pull it off and then create a melodic line, it's a real accomplishment and you feel yeah. something you haven't felt before just playing those same notes. Yeah. Which is the amazing thing about music. It's all about the context changing changes the music and it's 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 inspirational. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's a beautiful language. Okay, Chris, you've got a pretty good amount of success. You're making a living doing what you love to do and you have your cake and you've got to eat it too in terms of doing like more popular styles of music and film scoring music. You've got your family, you've got your place, you've you know, you've mm-hmm. got you've got yourself in a good position. Sure. Go back to the time, you know, pretend you're a kid now, starting out in his bedroom in Des Moines or wherever he is, or she is, I should say, more importantly, because women are doing this more and more, and thank God for that. (laughs) Um, What would you tell them? Like, how would you tell a kid or a group of kids to get started in this kind of thing? It's a really good question. I guess um, follow your heart. Uh, Go with your gut, you know, more than anything. that's, that's That's the thing that throughout every step along the way to get me to where I am now was, was just a feeling of following my instincts and what i and, and not only that, but having a lot of heart, a lot of commitment. And that's the main thing is, is it's just a lot of, you, you get into it, you get out of it, what you put into it and it's all hard work and long, 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 long hours. I mean, just getting to this point with Chardonnay was just year after year of hour after hour, constant, constant work. I mean, just, incredible amount of work so it's not something that happens overnight but i think it just takes a lot of um commitment tenacity all the usual things people say but at the end of the day more than anything else just truly loving what you do as long as you love what you do because i've i've seen people who have gotten to uh to who become fairly successful but then they kind of lost the reason why they got into it they become jaded or they don't care anymore there's like an apathy that sets in and that for me is the enemy. Apathy is the enemy. Not caring is the enemy. I have to always care about whatever I do, whether it's a ridiculous scenario or whatever it is. I have to care. There has to be something about it that, that means something to me. Exactly. So, man, thank you so much for taking the time, coming in and talking about this. No uh, problem. You know, the inevitable question I'm sure you're hearing from a lot of people are, will there be a third Sharknado movie? It seems like it's almost inevitable. It's already greenlit. <laughs> Here we are. We're taping this interview just probably 48 hours after, not even 48 hours after it aired, and it's already greenlit Sharknado 3. Oh, yeah, it's happening. So you've it's already, happening again. You've already, again. <laughs> written the, you've already written the score, and it's been pay, you've been paid probably, right? Oh, yeah. It's, uh, yeah I'm, I'm a private jet now, and yeah. Chris Dahl, no, I was kidding. <laughs> so, I mean, but where do you go from there? Like, what, I mean, is it going to be an international city? It's all downhill city? from here. I'm, I'm, my career's over now after this. Is I, it going to be like Sharknado <laughs> St. Louis? I mean, you've got well, New York and L.A. For the, I'm hoping for the uh, musical. Okay. And then there's the, the sharks on ice. Okay. And um, yeah, they're, the possibilities are pretty much endless. Oh, by the way, there is a video game. I'm not plugging this because I have nothing to do with it, but if you, could go, if you go on your uh, iPad or 
our iPhone, you can type in Sharknado and there's an official video game. Okay. With Finn running down the street and, it, it, I mean, you know, killing sharks. Is it your music in the video game too? You know what? I don't even, I, I can't tell. It's like, I, I played it a little bit, but there's so many effects going on. Yeah. I can't tell what's going on with the music. No. Although the theme song is in, I mean, uh, Anthony's uh, Sharknado song is in there. Though, okay. Which is awesome. It's an awesome song. Yeah. And that's just a little tidbit here that ties us back to Independence Day. Anthony, the director, wrote some music with Robbie Riss, yes. who was once upon a time cousin Oliver in the Brady yes. Bunch. Yes. Who's, now he's been a, a musician <laughs> and a voiceover artist yeah, for a very long time. Yeah, he's an amazing musician. Uh, and he did some of, you know, the more, like song, pop song, rock song, yeah, music they were, that's in Sharknado 2 where Robbie and the director Yeah, they, it was really amazing. They gave, the, the thing that's really great about their songs is they gave it a real New York vibe. You know, they're yeah. very Ramones inspired. Yeah, yeah. Totally Robbie's, fit the movie. Totally gave that movie that extra special character and fun. And they, they their, their songs are really great. I love them. I'm yeah. a big fan of what they Robbie do. is an outsized talent and personality who has the heart and intelligence to back it up. For which sure. Is what makes him such a yeah, cool guy. Yeah, he's a great musician. For and sure. And he was one of my earlier guests on Independence Day because I'd call the man friend. So check that <laughs> so out. So we've come full circle. We've come full circle. So Chris, man, people can learn about you. They can drop by your websites, plural, which is facebook.com slash Chris Ridenauer Music, twitter.com, you're at Chris Ridenauer, and soundcloud.com slash Chris Ridenauer. So people can follow you. They can check them out you're doing and you've got this relatively kind of re-new band it's an mm-hmm. old band that's back together again called uh the divine madness they're going to have some music out too you'll hear his music on tv you'll hear his music on the big screen i'm sure so chris thanks for coming out man no problem thanks for having me my pleasure so thanks to chris ridenauer also to the independence day staff valentino rivera del tanksley wayne topinski and sally shackleton the wonderful tony tone loke piscotti manages the independence day website Independence Day's theme music was composed by Great Lakes Myth Society. As always, for Independence Day, I am Joe Armstrong. Please be good to one another.